I want to just offer my thanks to uh, ENC, to the administration, to the faculty, the staff, to, uh, to uh, your, your very uh, dear and kind chaplain, uh, those that have been uh, just so gracious uh, during my time here. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share with you and uh, hope that there has been um, a good interaction. And if there have been no answers at times, that at least the questions have been asked. Uh, and sometimes that's just as important as finding the right answers, asking the right questions. Because if we seek of God and ask the questions, um, God is able to answer. Uh, I, I, I strongly believe that. And uh, in some sense, I've avoided giving you some of the simple answers to some of the questions that we pose. But that's because part of the calling of the people of God is to pursue what God is calling us towards, even if the answers are not always clear at the very beginning, that he is calling us to something more than simply uh, letting everything kind of go by us, but to pursue after God in these changing times. Um, I want to close today with the final challenge. Uh, over the last uh, three, four day, three days, uh, we have been looking at different aspects of Scripture. We have been examining the changing world around us and how does the Scripture call us to respond to the changing world around us. And I hope, even uh, as an example, we've seen that the words of the Lord really speak to our lives. That it is the Word of God that speaks to us and challenges us in how best we live our lives in the context of a changing world. But we do need to remember that we are living in a rapidly changing world. A world that is changing faster than we realize, faster than we want, faster than we expect. But that God is calling us not to run away from these changes, but to seek ways that His words and His truth might be communicated uh, during these times. Turn with me to Micah chapter 4. will be our text for today. Micah chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at some of the verses here from verses 1 and following. Let me say a word of prayer as we look at Micah chapter 4. Lord, I thank you for Eastern Nazarene College. Thank you for the work you have called this community for. It is a unique calling. It is a calling for a very specific time that we live in right now. It is also a reflection of your love for this community, that you have brought uh, these group of faculty, staff, students, those all involved with this community together. Because, Lord, you are doing a good work. And we, I want to honor that work, that you are in the midst of this community. Uh, continue to raise the challenges uh, to call ENC to a place where it is truly leading in so many areas that the church and the world needs this type of leadership. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, as you know, if you've been around for the last few days and if you've been uh, listening in on some of our conversations that we've been having in the classroom as well as in some of our chapel times, I raised the issue uh, at Monday's chapel and also on Monday evening's time that we are dealing with the rapid changing face of global and American Christianity. That internationally and globally speaking, we're seeing a shift from a, a Christian community that had once been 80 to 85% white to a Christian community globally that will be 80 to 85% non-white. And that we're right in the middle of these changes. We're shifting from a global Christian community that is so dominated by one race, and now it has become extraordinarily multicultural. And that that reality is also evident in American society. A society that had been dominated by white Christianity is now shifting to a much more multicultural Christianity. So both internationally and nationally, we are seeing some dra dra uh, drastic and dramatic changes in the demographics of Christianity. This morning, I want to challenge, however, 
that despite the changes demographically in Christianity globally and in the West and in the United States, the power dynamics of Christianity still remain the same from 100, 200 years ago. And that if we are indeed going to be dealing with the next stage, the next evangelicalism, the next stage of Christianity in the 21st century, we need to understand how some of these power dynamics are oppressive to what is now the majority culture in global and local Christianity. And I want to look at this by looking at the book of Micah. Micah chapter 4, verse 1 begins, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the nations. Among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You'll notice this passage begins by talking about the last days. Now, uh, no matter what your eschatology is, essentially what Micah is saying is that in the time period leading up to Jesus' return, in the time period, no matter how long that time period might be, the desire of God for His people is to lift up His people, the mountain of the Lord, and put them on a high place so that all the others will see that the faith of Yahweh, the followers of Jesus, are in, in this established position in a high place above all of the others. So the exciting vision and the exciting hope that God has for His church is to lift them up and that all the nations will stream to this high place. Now, here's what's interesting about Micah chapter 4. If you put it into the context of the larger biblical text, Micah chapter 4 is actually the opposite or the reverse image of the story of the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. You remember the story of the book of Genesis, right? In the book of Genesis, you had this human attempt to build a mountain or a tower. And as they built this tower, their attempt was to either get closer to God or bring God down low. So the attempt there is a human attempt to establish something that, uh, that builds up human achievement. But a result of that human attempt was actually the scattering of the nations. And in an attempt to establish a human structure, instead of unity, there was instead disunity, a division and a, a curse that spreads the people out and divides them one from another. And here in the book of Micah, in chapter 4, when the reverse image is given, Micah is foretelling or prophesying the reversing of the curse of the Tower of Babel. So instead of a human tower that is built and people scattering away, the mountain of the Lord is now established and all the nations stream to that mountain of the Lord. It is the reverse image of Genesis. It is the reversing of the curse of the Tower of Babel. And this is a very exciting image. Because what it reminds us is that throughout human history, we have been divided along racial, ethnic, cultural divisions. That that has been the reality of most of human history. That wars have been fought across nations because of ethnic conflict. That wars have been called, fought because of cultural differences. That slavery was instituted because of racism. That the genocide of communities have occurred because of ethnic racial differences. That that's been the history, maybe a result of the Tower of Babel. But the promise of Micah chapter 4 is that the opposite is about to occur. A change is afoot. That instead of 
nations and peoples and ethnicities and races divided and walls of hostility between them, that these walls will come down. And the image of Micah 4 is that all the peoples, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your race, regardless of your culture, can come to the mountain of the Lord and God's desire is to lift up this united people people from all different parts of the world, all different ethnicity, and say, Behold, these are my people. And all the other faiths, all the other mountains will say, Those really are the people of God. Look at what's happening in the Christian community. That's God's desire for His people, for His church. Now to me, the saddest part about Micah 4, Micah 4 is an exciting image. I mean, think about the the great joy that would come if, if Micah 4 were a reality. The saddest part of Micah 4 is that even though it foretells and prophesies for a time when the church should be like that, the reality is that the church right now isn't like that. The church actually remains divided. Martin Luther King said that 11 a.m. Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. And people say, well, why do we quote that all the time? It's quoted all the time because it's still true. That even though we have this incredible diversity in America, even though we have this incredible global diversity in Christianity, we still are a segregated and separated Christian community. That 11 a.m. still remains the most segregated time in America. So even though God is calling us to this incredible image of Micah chapter 4, where all the nations stream together, God lifts up His people and said, Behold the people of God, diverse, all different races, That hasn't happened in most of Christianity in the world and in the United States. The church is diverse. It's supposed to be diverse. It's supposed to encompass the wide range of ethnicities. But most of our local churches, most of our Christian communities remain segregated. I want to put this, therefore, into the context of the reality of diversity in the church but also the reality of separation and segregation in the church. And what is God calling us out of Micah chapter 4 to bring about a transformation that we can see the fulfillment of Micah chapter 4 and the reversing of the curse of Babel. So one of the things that this passage speaks of is to lay down the sword in order for there to be genuine and authentic reconciliation. It says, the people will stream to it Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Then it says in verse 3, They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now that's a very powerful imagery. It's the image of people who have been fighting over and with each other. All of a sudden there is peace. There is shalom that characterizes the people of God rather than war rather than violence, rather than conflict. I love this phrase because it, it, it's this interesting phrase about the image of swords being turned into plowshares. Now, if you're from the East Coast like myself, we have a progressive mindset. And for us, when you hear the word sword, it sounds like war, it sounds like battle. And for us, we think, well, we don't want war. War is a bad thing. Now, when we think in those terms, we equate that image of swords turned into plowshares as the end of hostility based upon war. That is one valid interpretation of it. But here's another way of looking at the word sword. The word sword is not to be equated with the word war. The sword actually, if you look at the use of that word all throughout the Old Testament, 
actually is oftentimes equated with the word power. So the image there is not the cessation of war, although that's a valid end goal. The image there is the putting down of power. And the transformation of expressions of power, such as the sword, being transformed into expressions of peace, such as the plowshare. So think about this image with me. How do we become the people of God of Micah chapter 4? How do we establish the mountain of the Lord and all the nations stream to it? What is the precursor that is necessary for the image of Micah 4 to come to pass? It is the laying down of the sword. It is the laying down of power. Now, this is where, when we start talking about the application of this passage, this is where things start getting uncomfortable. And I'm going to be very blunt with you because I feel, I feel that I've been blunt with you, but I'm going to be more blunt with you. When we talk about the issue of power, there is a great level of discomfort that gets raised. But the discomfort is usually among whites rather than by the people of color. I notice this when I go to board meetings or I go to like national gatherings of pastors and the like. Uh, in fact, I was at a roundtable discussion on the issue of multi-ethnicity and racial diversity. And I was raising the issue of power, that power needs to be shared in the evangelical community. And the person, the, uh, one of the prominent white male leaders said, well, no, this is not about power. Power is a worldly term. Power has nothing to do with what's going on in this kind of dialogue about the issue of race. And I responded, well, here we are in your house. All of us drove two hours to get to your house. And the minorities drove to come to your house because you didn't want to come to inner city Chicago. So we drove out to your suburban community. And you're telling me that it's not about power? Who had the power to dictate where this meeting was going to be? Who had the power to dictate that it's going to be in my house rather than in a church in the inner city? So when we talk about the issue of power, the, those who have the power are the most uncomfortable in talking about the power. Minorities, we talk about power all the time. Well, we don't have it, so we talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had some power? But the white community, because you are the dominant power, you don't want to talk about power. Because the second we start talking about power, somebody's power might get challenged. And so we Christianize this talk. And we say, oh, we don't talk about power in the church. That's not a biblical term. We talk about servanthood. And so everybody should be a servant, which is a great thing to say as a white person to an African-American, we should talk about slavery or servanthood, as, we, as the biblical term might be. So there is a discomfort in the larger evangelical community to talk about the issue of power. But this passage, I think, is pretty clear. If you're going to talk about a racially reconciled, a diverse community, a people of God that are united, you've got to talk about power. You cannot avoid this topic. Now, let me give you a few reflections on what power might mean for us as a white evangelical or American evangelical community. Let me begin by sharing my story as an Asian American. When I see this word, when I see this phrase, as an as a Asian American, it talks about you need to lay down your power. My first thought is not I'm going to lose power. My first thought is I never had power to begin with. And I don't know where I'm going to begin to lay down my power when power to me is a foreign concept, as a minority in America, I don't understand this concept of power. Now, I'm going to do this in kind of a humorous way, but there are others with kind of harder stories on this. But one of the ways that I've noticed is that 
Asian American males have issues with power. But now, and let me explain this. A few years ago in California, there was a study done on which ethnic group had the lowest self-image. And the question was, well, which group has the lowest self-image? And they thought, well, is it Native American men or women, or uh, African American men or women, or Hispanic men or women, or white men or women? It turns out that the ethnic group with the lowest self-image is the Asian American male. The Asian American male has the lowest self-image of any ethnic group. Now, this surprised some people. They're saying, wait a minute, you know, Asian Americans, you can look at the stereotypes. How come Asian American males have this poor self-image? Well, they probed a little further and they said the reason why the Asian American male has such poor self-image is because of the Asian American female. Now, before I get into trouble with my wife later on, let me explain that a little bit. The perception of the Asian American female in American society is actually uh, twofold. One, it's, it's more positive than of the Asian American male, but it is also, uh, the Asian American female is oftentimes portrayed as a desirable in some sense, a sexualized being. Uh, the very first television commercial featuring an Asian American female was a pantyhose commercial where she was seen as this kind of desirable object uh, of, of, uh, uh, of, you know, this kind of uh, sexualized being. So in that sense, that's a very negative type of portrayal of Asian American females, but at least on one level, it's seen in a, in, in a desirable way. In contrast, the portrayal of Asian American males is almost universally negative. As the bumbling fool, as the geek, as the nerd, as the emasculated male. So you look at these images of the Asian American female in contrast to the Asian American male, and nine times out of ten, the Asian American female is in some sense dysfunctionally, but portrayed positively, and the Asian American male is oftentimes portrayed in a strongly negative sort of way. Uh, let me give you an example of this in this study. So the study went on to say, why is it that Asian American males have this poor self-image? And they were comparing interracial dating among Asian Americans. And the question was, if you see an Asian American female with a white male, what's your perception of the Asian American female? The answer was, the Asian American female is desirable, attractive, there's something unique and exotic about her that the white male would date the Asian American female. The same question was asked with the reverse. When you see an Asian American male with a white female, what's your perception of the white female? The answer came back, the white female couldn't get a real man, that's why she settled for the Asian American man. Now, these are caricatures that are out there in American society. And you see this in television. You see this in the ways that people are portrayed in the media. And so this starts to affect and impact the Asian American male's self-perception. Now, I'm giving you a little bit of a snapshot of this, but ultimately, if you think about the larger images that are out there for the others in our society, the Asian Americans, the African Americans, the Latino Americans, the Native Americans, they're oftentimes portrayed in an exoticized way that marginalizes them from the norm. And in the process of marginalizing these individuals and these communities from the norm, you have disempowered these communities from actually speaking in a powerful way into larger society. So if the black male is just the caricature of a hip-hop inner-city gangbanger, then, well, clearly they have nothing to contribute to American society because they are the inner-city hip-hop gangbanger. 
And even if you're dressed in a suit in a corporate office, you still have that image of the hip-hop gangbanger in the back of your mind, even though you're talking to an Ivy League-educated African-American male in a suit with a briefcase, that person is still in the back of your mind the hip-hop gangbanger. So with these images that are out there and the caricatures that are out there, no matter what an ethnic minority does, you're still going to have this caricature of the emasculated Asian-American male, the violent African-American male, the subservient Asian-American female. These are the images that come up because that's the message that is given to us in larger society. And that is disempowering. That is emasculating. That is an aspect of society that says your worth and your value is tied in with how I, as the dominant culture, views you. You're the other. You're different from us. You're not of the norm. This is what we deal with in society. This is not the way the church is supposed to be. This is not the way the church is supposed to be. But as I've been kind of talking to you for the last couple of days, one of my concerns right now is the normative perspective or the primacy or the supremacy of a Western white Christianity that puts everybody else on the margins and leaves us powerless. So here's an example of this in Christianity. When you talk about theology, for example, when you hear the word theology, who are the theologians you think of? Now, I went to evangelical seminaries and I teach at an evangelical seminary and I'm involved with evangelical institutions. What I see over and over again is when people say our theology department and I look at what they've studied, they've studied, maybe justifiably, they've studied Calvin, Luther, Wesley, and the list goes on and on and every single one of them is a white male that they've studied. So you look at the theology departments of most evangelical institutions, look at their bio, and you say, what are their th- uh, areas of expertise? And their areas of expertise are always Edwardsian theology, Wesleyan theology, Luther, Calvin. And that becomes the standard by which we judge theology. And it's actually, it's interesting, even if you look at ethnic minorities who teach theology, their field of expertise is Edwardsian theology, Wesleyan theology, Luther and Calvin. So what happens is, you have a central, normal theology. And that's Western theology. And everything else is given a funny name to it. So you have the central theology. You don't need to describe it anything more than theology. But then you have black theology. Then you have liberation theology. Then you have Minjung theology. Or a feminist theology. And you give it a funny name or an adver- uh, adjectival description because you're saying that's not normal theology. Because normal theology, you don't need to say there's a name attached to it. We don't say, I'm studying about Luther and Calvin, a white theology, which is what it is. We have to say, I'm studying such and such a person, and that's black theology. So there is a normative white theology that you don't have to explain because that's the main theology. And other theology that comes from other ethnic groups are marginalized and they're given a strange name because you're uniquely identifying them as not the normal central theology. It is a peripheral theology. It's the creation of the other. It is the creation of a sense of otherness. That's disempowering. That's saying, ultimately at the end of the day, the real theology is the white theology. The Western theology. I'll give you an example of this. A few years ago, I was at this uh, mission conference. 
And the mission conference tried something very innovative and I thought it was wonderful, at least the attempt that they were trying to do. They brought in three ethnic minority or uh, speakers from the third world. They brought in a speaker from uh, Asia, from Latin America and from Africa to talk about the Christian movement in those countries. Which was great. We need to hear these stories from outside of the U.S. The major problem they did, however, in this mission conference, is after the speaker spoke from another country, they followed them up with a white American speaker. And what happened was, in two cases it was okay, but in the third incident, there was a Bolivian pastor speaking about the great revivals occurring in Latin America. And he gets up there and he shares for 30 minutes about the sense of community that developed in Bolivia as they were doing these revivals and there were whole communities that were becoming Christian and it was an exciting story. Now many people were tuning him out because he had a bit of an accent and because he was not an American. So what happened was, after he told the story about the gospel being a communal experience in the country of Bolivia, the next person to come up was a white male pastor from the East Coast. And he gets up there and he says, but you know, we know what the real gospel is, don't we? We know what the gospel is really all about, don't we? And he turned, he went and proceeded to kind of to dismiss everything that this Latino pastor had said and went and presented a very Western individualistic theology and said, that's the real gospel, and that's what we know to be the true gospel, right? And that became the message. So who had the power in that dynamic? Was it the Latin American pastor, who actually represents a lot more of what Christianity is going to look like, or was it the white male pastor who came up and corrected the false theology of this Latino pastor? Again, where was the power there? Where was the power there? The call in Micah chapter 4 is, are you willing to lay down your power? Are you willing to lay down your power in such a way that the, the unity that God is calling for in Micah chapter 4 could actually come to pass? The calling of God's people united, lifted up, so that all the nations can say, yeah, that's the people of the Lord. How that happens is when there is a laying down of power. Let me raise a challenge in this a little bit more and talk about what it means to lay down the power. Laying down the power means different things for different groups. If you're an African American, Latino American, or Native American, put it in very uh, direct terms, the laying down of power is a very different concept because most of these individuals are isolated from power. So the laying down of power actually might mean where you take on a leadership position because that's outside of your experience in larger Christianity. To be willing to step into this kind of setting where you're a minority, but still say, I have something to offer. I can lead. I can mentor. I have something to offer this community, even though I am a minority in this community. That might be the way you lay down power. But let me issue a challenge for the Caucasian and white communities in these kind of communities. The laying down of power for you means that you are, for maybe for the first time in your life, entering into relationships where you're not in charge or where your perspective as a white Christian is not the dominant perspective. I'll, I'll tell you something. Every ethnic minority in this room has had a person of power over them that has been of a different ethnicity. Every single minority in this room has had a white pastor, has had a white professor, has had a white boss, has had a white political leader over them. Every single one of us knows what it's like to have a cross-cultural authority in our lives. The majority of white Christians have never had that experience. Never had the experience of being under the leadership of someone not like themselves. 
I'll put it in this way. A few years ago, I was at a Christian college, and it was a Christian college known for being a great mission-sending agency. And uh, I was congratulating them for all the work they've done in mission work. But one of the questions I raised is, given the changes that are occurring in the world right now, and you want to be a missionary somewhere, you want to take the gospel into all the corners of the world, but you've never had a non-white mentor in your life, you're not going to be a missionary, you're going to be a colonialist. Because you're going to colonize the third world, you're going to colonize the developing world with your brand of white American evangelicalism and not with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you don't know what it's like to see the gospel through any other eyes except your own. Because all your mentors, all your teachers, all your spiritual leaders have been of one ethnicity. And so the only viewpoint you have and the only assumptions you can make is that that's the definitive gospel when it's actually a culturally shaped gospel. So what does it mean then for you as a white American student in a multi-ethnic setting? It means that you have to be willing to be in positions of powerlessness to lay down the sword of power and say, I need to learn from those that are different from me because I will not be equipped with what's happening in the world around me. Let me put it in even harder terms. If this school or any school is not preparing you for a multi-ethnic future, you're not getting your money's worth. Because the church and the world is changing so dramatically that the goal of education now has to be the preparation for leadership for the next generation of leadership. Not for the last generation of leadership, but for the next generation of leadership. And if you as a student do not have the opportunity to learn from non-white faculty and staff, then your school is doing you a disservice because you're not being prepared to lead the next stage of Christianity. You're being prepared to lead the last stage of Christianity, the previous generation where it was dominated by a white male Western theology, but in the next generation of Christianity, that's not going to be the case. And if you're not prepared for that, you're not going to be able to lead, serve, or be a part even of that next generation of Christianity. Have you put down your sword? Have you put down your sword? Have you been willing to say, part of my power and privilege is to only learn from other whites, to only hear from white voices, to only read textbooks written by white males? Have you put down that sword? This is the challenge that I want to raise for you today. This is the challenge that I want to raise for you, not because I need to have my voice heard, or there are African Americans who want their voice heard, because it's good for you. It's good for you. It's good for the church. It's for the benefit of God's kingdom. Recognizing that in the next 30, 40 years, the church in America and the church globally is going to look so different than what the church has looked like for the last 500 years. And are you going to be a leader in that church? Or are you going to be recollecting the past of generation of what the church used to look like? I would want to see the people of God prepared to take on the leadership and the servanthood for a new generation of leadership. Because these things are changing so fast around us. Let me close with this image. The image of Micah chapter 4 is that all the nations stream and God lifts up this and says, These are my people. And behold, uh, uh, these are the people that I've, uh, that I've lifted up and raised up. And it talks about this image of, of the mountain of the Lord being established. Now, as I said, this is kind of a reversing of the curse of Babel, but there's also another image at work here, and that I think is the restoration of the image of God. 
Now in the Old Testament, in the image of God, there is the, we are created in the image of God, and the image of God is broken or shattered. That's a, kind of a basic understanding of, of human fallenness. I want to give you this image. Stan Inouye, who's a Japanese-American theologian, puts it this way. Think of the image of God as a reflection. So in some sense, think of God standing before a mirror and seeing his reflection. So that's the creation of the image of God. Now think also that that mirror shatters. It falls to the ground and breaks into a thousand different pieces. And that's what the fall is, where the image of God is shattered because of the introduction of sin. Now what happens is, part of the work of the church is to bring restoration to the image of God. And how does that happen? Well, you've got a thousand pieces on the floor, you're going to have to put those pieces back together again. And there's two things that need to happen. The first thing that needs to happen is because it fell on the floor, that piece of the mirror, which are different ethnic groups all over the world, that piece of the mirror needs to be cleaned up. Because it fell on the floor, it got dirty. It needs to be cleaned up. So that's one stage or one phase of the gospel message, to clean up your piece of the mirror. But then there's another stage or another phase, and that's to bring the pieces of the mirror together. And if you've ever handled broken glass, and try to piece broken glass together. What happens when you handle broken glass? You get cut. You're going to bleed. You're going to get wounded. Now this is the image for me of multi-ethnicity and racial reconciliation. We need people who are going to clean up your piece of the glass. Because every culture has fallen. Every culture is redemptive, but every culture has fallen. And so in some sense, me as an Asian American, one of the things that I'm called for is to go to the Asian American community and say, there's some stuff that we're doing is just messed up. Let's, let's be drawn closer to the image of God so that we can better and accurately reflect the image of God in the Asian American community. That's part of my calling. And those of you in the white community, that's part of your calling to return to your communities, to your small rural churches, to your suburban wealthy churches, and say, look, there's some stuff that we're doing that's just messed up. We need to be polishing our piece of the mirror. That's one of the calls when we come to multi-ethnicity. The second part of that, though, is that we need people that are going to be the glue that brings these broken pieces of glass together. The ones that are going to be the bridges and the glue that, that brings it together. And if you're playing with the edges of the glasses of the mirror, I guarantee you, you're going to get cut. So some of the most committed people to racial reconciliation are also some of the most wounded and cut people. Several years ago, I was in Jackson, Mississippi. I was at a conference that was sponsored by two of the pioneers in, in this century, in this last century, however, of, uh, of racial reconciliation, Chris Rice and Spencer Perkins. Uh, they wrote a landmark book and did much speaking across the country on this issue of racial reconciliation. And one of the things about Chris and Spencer is that they embody, Chris is white, Spencer is black, they embodied racial reconciliation. They lived in community together. They had one checkbook together. They were a, a living, uh, living uh, expression of racial reconciliation. At this conference, Spencer Perkins, uh, who's the son of John Perkins, gave an amazing address about the grace that was needed in racial reconciliation. Two days after the, uh, actually a day after the conference, he had a, a massive heart attack and he died at the age of 42. After Spencer died, Chris Rice sent out an email to the number of friends and it listed all those who had been committed to racial reconciliation who had died at a young age, who had children who went through incredible difficulties who went through marital issues or children who died or just incredible story after story 
of individuals committed to racial reconciliation and multi-ethnicity and justice who have died at a young age. Tom Skinner, Spencer Perkins, Martin Luther King. The list went on and on and on and on. If you're committed to God's work in this area, expect that you're going to get cut. Expect that you're going to get wounded. Expect that you're going to bleed. But here's the good news. This is not our work. This is the work of our Heavenly Father. This is not our task. This is the desire and vision of our God in heaven. This is not something that we do, bringing the body together. That's the work that Jesus did on the cross. We get to participate. We get to be a part of it. And we get to rejoice in what God is doing. But this is not our work. It is the work of our Savior. And God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope or imagine. Let me tell you, I've done this shtick for a while now. I've gone to, it feels like, almost every Christian college in the U.S. in some of the most remote places imaginable. I can't even tell you what it feels like to drive through cornfields these days because it just freaks me out that I'm going to these random places in the middle of nowhere, Christian colleges all over. So I've done this enough times in the last 10-15 years to know a couple of things. One, this is not an easy message. But two, that there are changes that God is bringing. ENC 15 years ago didn't look like this. Naya College 15 years ago didn't look like it looks like now. North Park University 15 years ago didn't, doesn't, didn't look like what it looks like now. There are Christian institutions that are changing, slowly but changing. And that's not anything that one individual has done or even groups of people have done. It is clearly the work of God. Now the question is, God is moving. Now the question is, are you going to be a part of that movement? Are you going to be those who lay down your power, lay down the sword, so that we might see the continuation of the move of God in our community? Let's pray. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray a blessing upon Eastern Nazarene College. I pray a blessing as one who has a heart for this community, but at the same time is coming from another context. As one who has seen the work that you've been doing from afar, but at the same time recognizing that this is still the body of Christ and that there is a unity, even if we're coming from different denominational contexts or different parts of the country or different stories. So as one who comes as both an outsider but also in some sense a part of this community as a fellow believer and as a fellow journeyer, I pray a blessing upon this community that they have committed to the hard work of building a community of faith that honors you across the barriers, that they are a community that is committed to tearing down the walls of hostility that they are a community, community longing to be drawn into the presence of God and lifted up as the people of God. Lord, I pray a blessing upon this community that you would do the amazing work of reconciliation, that you would do the amazing work of your truth and your justice reigning over this community. Lord, I thank you. And in the name of Jesus, I bless this community. Lord, I cast out fear the fear that says this is too hard a task. The fear that says I might have to give up power if this thing is going to happen. The fear that says 
We don't know where we're going with this thing. What if we venture into unknown territory? Lord, I cast out fear in the name of Jesus. For perfect love casts out fear. So we pray instead of fear that you would fill this community with love. The love that says, I need to learn from my brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if they're different from me. Even if they hold different views. Even if they have a different understanding of the world. Even if they hold a different viewpoint. I pray that the love of Christ would reign in this place in such a way that the barriers, the walls of hostility would be torn down. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray for courage for this institution. Courage for the leadership, the faculty, the staff, the administration. Courage for students and for student leaders. Courage to say, it's time for something different than what the world has seen for the last 50 to 100 years of American Christianity. The church that is hid from the world. The church that was irrelevant to what was going on. The church that was fearful of change. The church that showed and exhibited some really racist uh, tendencies. But now I pray for the church to be courageous enough to lead in these changing times. And I pray that ENC might be one of those places that many will look back and say, there was a place that exemplified, that modeled the servant leadership that was necessary for American Christianity and global Christianity to enter into a whole new realm and a whole new era. God, I thank you for the work that you're doing here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.